Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and also creating things, either historically inspired or not. And we like to start, before our main subject, by talking about what we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? So we we did successfully do the tie-dyeing. Excellent. So I I do now have a rainbow tie-dyed dress, which is... Yeah, it's very good. Like, like it's basically... I mean, you can look at Marks and Spencers at the moment. They've got this, like, white, very kind of um, cottagecore kind of cotton dress. Mm -hmm. And I have just high dyed the heck out of it it's all covered in rainbows now amazing and yeah we've got a bunch of dye left because basically i got one of those kits that's meant to be for like doing a tie dyeing party with kids kind of thing mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of dye left so we're getting some short sleeve button-ups to also do of course because <laughs> We're non-binary, so we need tie-dyed short sleeve button-ups. Just <laughs> obviously, just leaning into that fun uncle style. Well, yeah, like we already both own short sleeve button-ups with a pink flamingo pattern. This is the <laughs> next logical step. I am loving you entering your matching button-ups couple era. It was not intentional. <laughs> um, but once we realised it, when we went out for dinner for our anniversary, we, d- we did both wear our flamingo shirts. <laughs> Amazing. And the lady at the restaurant said it was very cute. It is. It's so <laughs> Love it. That is goals. <laughs> Living the dream. What have you been up to? <laughs> um, just working on my quilt a bit more, really. I've not had a load of time, but it's been nice to be able to progress on something a little bit every day and see it grow. I'm sort of joining one of the rows now, so it's it's looking like it's coming together into something, which is fun. And yeah, I'm just getting to play with colour a little bit every day. Oh, I made some hot cross buns at the weekend. Nice. Yes. Um, I did not have time to do the actual like cross on top, but I took Neil Battery's advice and just did it with a knife and it was fine and they were still tasty. Um, I didn't have any mixed peels. The cross is the least important part, really. It's all about I mean, what's in yeah, it when it's toasted. It's just aesthetics. Um, so I didn't have any mixed peels, so I used chopped up dried apricot instead and that was nice. Um, okay, it's really funny that you say that, actually. Okay. Well, because me and Nick were talking about how I really like panettone in theory, but I hate candied peel. And we mm. were like, well, what if we just put in the like, raisins and sultanas and then some apricots so you still have that vague sort of slight sharpness in there without it being candied peel? Ah. So I just found it funny that that's what <laughs> you did. How did it work? It was good. It gave it that, for me, it was more about the texture. So it gave it like those little nuggets of like chewy fruitiness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I'm not a huge Sultana fan, so I just put a few of those in. Um, so it got that extra kind of chewy, fruity goodness in there. Um, but I chopped them up relatively small. Yeah. And it, yeah, it worked good. They didn't all sink to the bottom or anything. It was it was good. So it's good to know our, our theory is correct and we can maybe make panettone this Christmas. That would be amazing. Would recommend. It also, making hot cross buns makes your hands smell amazing and your kitchen smell amazing. Mm. Baking. Ah, oh, baking. So anyway, what are we talking about today <laughs> before I get too hungry? Related, actually. Oh. Um, this is, yeah, I w- so we were talking about sort of factory-made bread and things like that, and I was lamenting the Chorleywood process in the uh, Patreon server, so I thought I would talk about sliced bread. Excellent. I, I feel like this is going to be the best episode since... Uh... I knew I knew it was gonna happen. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> and I did I nothing. <laughs> Have we actually done a bread episode yet? We've covered things that are bready. Like I think we yeah. did more cross buns. But I don't think we've done like a specific like We've not done like bread bread. Bread, yeah, which is, I can't believe we've come this far and yet the bread and bread and thread has been relatively neglected. So let's go. So I, I do have to ask first, because you know I was going to ask, how old do you think sliced bread is? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as in, when you buy it pre-sliced. Yeah, not just the concept of cutting up bread. <laughs> That's quite old. Okay. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to go... Like, relatively older than my instinct would be, because I have the feeling... I don't know why, but I have the feeling that you could go to a baker's and like they would slice it for you. Um, uh, late nineteenth century, early twentieth. Okay, not too bad. Not far. Not far off. <laughs> um. So credit for the single loaf bread slicing machine uh, goes to Otto Frederick. Rovedder, or possibly Rowedder. Um, don't know how he pronounced it. He <laughs> died in 1960. A former jeweler. Oh. From Iowa. Okay, I was not expecting that. Yeah, but basically he was like, Hey, what if there was a machine that could do even slices of bread? Because basically the, there's... A lot of people are bad at slicing bread, essentially. <laughs> it is quite hard to slice, like, actual bakery bread. Especially if you want it thin or 
very even slices, say if you're doing a lot of sandwiches or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, Otto was just like, I could, I could fix this problem. And he sold his three jewellery stores to fund developing his machine. What? That is some dedication to bread slicing. It's, it's kind of... It's, like, there's a brief disaster, though. His original prototype and blueprints were destroyed in a fire. No! In... Either 1912 or 1917, I have seen both from various sources. Okay. Um, but he persevered. He did persevere <laughs> and patented a machine that would slice a, a standard size loaf of bread and wrap it in wax paper. Okay, that is impressive. Which goes to show you should never give up on your dreams. And the wrapping is key here because the big um, objection to pre-sliced bread, and there were a lot of people who were against this. <laughs> of course. Like, there's there's multiple newspaper articles you can find that are just like, this is a disaster and all of the bread <laughs> will go off before you can use it. Oh, no. um, yeah, that was the main objection. It's because okay. you've got all of these surfaces, the individual slices are going to go stale. That's true, but doesn't that kind of happen anyway? I would argue they had a point. Okay. Because having switched from pre-sliced to homemade bread, instead of having several slices go stale, I just have the edge that was cut go stale. Ah, and you just slice okay. a thin slice off, and then you've just got some good bread. Alright, fair enough. With maybe a slightly harder crust than you had initially. But people were into this idea. Um, it was adopted by the Chillicoth Baking Company in Missouri, mm -hmm. who sold clean, spelt K-L-E-E-N, because it was the 20s. Of course. Made <laughs> sliced bread. Although our old friends Battle Creek also claimed to be, have been the first place to sell sliced bread. You, you remember our friends Battle Creek, Michigan? Um, remind me? Uh, that's where Mr. Kellogg set up shop. Oh, of course. <laughs> Okay, so sliced bread, the best thing since cornflakes. <laughs> well, actually advertised as the greatest step forward in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. <laughs> I absolutely love all this fuss over sliced bread. Um, I did find a quote from the local newspaper from the 6th of July 1928. Announcement by M.F. Bench of the Chillicoth Baking Company of a new sliced bread service is significant in that it gives the Chillicoth Baking Company the distinction of being the first bakers in the world to sell sliced bread to the public. Wow. 
you also weren't quite northern just then. <laughs> it happens. Um, <laughs> it was also reported that you could experience a thrill of pleasure when she first <laughs> sees a loaf of this bread with each slice the exact counterpart of its fellows. So neat and precise are the slices, and so definitely better than anyone could possibly slice by hand with a bread knife, that one realises instantly that here is a refinement which will receive a hearty and permanent welcome. I love old adverts. <laughs> Just... Oh, the, this isn't an advert. This is a report. Okay. Um, which also calls it startling. <laughs> wow, I know this podcast talks about a lot of things that you might not know were considered aphrodisiacs, but um, <laughs> sliced bread. <laughs> um, but, I mean... I say it's an article. I guess it's kind of between the two. It's like a puff piece. Because um, it also says that considerable research <laughs> went into establishing that the ideal thickness for a slice of bread is just under half an inch. I would love to have been involved in the bread testing. Wait, well, yeah, like, what does bread. that involve? Do you think it was just Rowena going, hmm, could be thinner. <laughs> but not too thin. That's not just munching on like various slices of bread and going, hmm, not quite right. <laughs> uh, but it was a boon. It did lead to an increase in bread sales in the US. Okay. Um, there's... Some people think it's because the slices were thinner, so and it was just easier to just grab another piece. Mm -hmm. Which also led to an increase in sales of butter and jam. Oh, so sliced bread, good for the economy? We'll get to this. Okay. We'll get to this in the 40s. Um, <laughs> but first, I do want to talk about uh, Walsh's Baking Company's Golden Toast Thick and Thin. Alright, that is a mouthful of a product name. Um, which was advertised in Evansville, Indiana as it was great because you can get thick and thin slices from the same loaf but I guess uh -huh. intentionally as opposed to accidentally with a bread knife because <laughs> then you can use it for different things. Yeah. The first improvement since sliced bread... Amazing. Thought to be the first instance of something being compared in advertising to sliced bread. And what was being compared was also sliced bread. But we do also get the most progressive step that has been taken in the baking industry since sliced bread was, was introduced. Sorry, I am just absolutely wheezing over <laughs> Which is um, bred by Bell Bakeries of Tampa, Florida, which was enriched with vitamin B. Okay. In 1934. And in 1939, we have in Lafayette, Indiana. I'm having a great time, can you tell? <laughs> I can. Twin style white bread, where the two halves of the loaf are wrapped separately for better freshness oh. in the pantry. 
It is the newest thing since sliced bread. So is this where we get the phrase, the greatest thing since sliced bread from? Because it was like all over these adverts. It seems to ha- it seems to have been. Um, so I, I did find an article on the phrase, um, mm-hmm. which says the, the first use of best thing sliced bread since sliced bread, as opposed to all these other comparisons of the newest and most progressive thing since sliced bread, um, is in a newspaper in Ireland from 1951 compare saying that a very attractive man is the greatest thing since sliced bread fantastic <laughs> so it it made its way into the vocabulary quite quickly i feel yeah well i mean if <laughs> I'm not surprised, given the apparent like cultural ubiquity of it. And this is when we start seeing Wonder Bread, which okay, that's a familiar name. Yeah, it's a very big brand in the US. Uh, comes in polka dot packaging, I believe. Um, so Wonder Bread started in 1921, um, but it was one of the first brands to be sold pre-sliced in supermarkets, um, okay. like nationwide brands. They started being sliced in 1930. So very quick take up, like they, they knew what, what was happening. It's like, we've got to get in on this sliced bread thing. <laughs> Oh, if it's increasing sales, then that makes mm. a lot of sense. And they actually exhibited um, their sliced bread at the 1939 New York World's Fair. So this was a, a big deal. Yeah. Then we get to 1943. Okay. And uh, the brief wartime ban on sliced bread. Oh, interesting. I can hear by the tone of your voice that there is a good story here. <laughs> I mean, it's more just that I find it wild. Um, <laughs> what, why? Because the wrapping needs to be thicker than for a, an unsliced loaf to stop it from drying ah. out. So it was to save resources that were being used on this unnecessary extra thick bread wrapping. Oh, wow. I would, I would never even thought of that. But it was controversial. Um, um, Yeah, the mayor of New York said that bakeries with their own machines should be allowed to use them. Like that the ban should just be on the big commercial things like Wonder Bread. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote in the New York Times um, from a letter from a housewife. I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. My husband and four children are all in a rush during and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each one, that's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least twenty slices for two sandwiches apiece. Afterward, I make my own toast. Twenty-two slices of bread to be cut in a hurry. 
Wow, when you put it like that, like... Yeah, it's a lot of bread. <laughs> She's got a point. <laughs> Um, yeah, the ban lasted for two months. <laughs> um, with the Secretary of Agriculture claiming that the ban didn't save as much as he was expecting, and there actually was sufficient wax paper. I mean, I suppose that's an example of a sensible U-turn. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, part of the ban also apparently was about um, saving steel used in the slicers. Right. But that also wouldn't have reduced that much. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad that sliced bread was not unduly kept from the people of America. Only for... T not even two whole months. <laughs> it's like mid-January to the 8th of March. Fantastic. The nation runs on sliced bread. So not two whole months, and one of those months is pretty short. <laughs> I just find it beautiful. But it is it is great. <laughs> and yeah, you can get different thicknesses and interestingly in different places the sort of standard thickness is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my favourite one is Texas Toast, which is double thickness pre-sliced bread for Ooh. making just really nice thick toasts. Is that comparable to like the UK toasty bread or is it thicker? From what I can tell, I think it is a bit thicker because it, it's not just Ooh. thick sliced, it's double thickness. Okay. Oh, that is... Sounds pillowy. <laughs> Um, but now I want to move on from sliced bread to, uh, I would say the next big innovation in pre-prepared bread. <laughs> next big innovation since sliced bread, yes. <laughs> um, which is the Chorleywood bread process. Right. I do not know what this is. Um, so... Essentially, British wheat has less gluten than some other wheats. Okay. Um, which means that it takes longer to actually develop the bread. Ah, wow. Uh, the kneading and proving can be a bit longer. So... The British Baking Industries Research Association. Just take that in. Based that that in... is another one of <laughs> our committees and organisations that exist. Yeah. Um, um, so this one was based in Chorleywood in Hertfordshire. They wanted to develop a way to make bread, like nice fluffy bread, faster. And the way that they did this was the adding in of um, various things like um, oxidizing agents and hard fats. Huh. 
And also, actually, a lot of versions also include the addition of amylase, which is the it's the same enzyme that breaks down starch into simple sugars in your saliva. Oh, yes. Like, it, you know, when you hold bread in your mouth and it starts to taste sweet, that's amylase. No way. Which is cool. Yeah, that is a cool fact. So they, they add all these things in. And there's also there's a whole bunch of different things in this in the steps, but the main things are adding in, as I said, oxidizing oxidizing agents, enzymes and hard fat which basically means fat that's solid at room temperature okay uh extra yeast and extra water and then a bunch of more to do with the actual process of making the bread things that i don't 100 percent understand things like the atmosphere and the mixing rate and things like that. The Technical baking industry terms. Yeah, like I make my own bread. I don't understand all of these things. <laughs> I was gonna say I I just I, I put yeast, I need, I wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh there's also more salt in the trolley process, I believe. But yeah, it's it was developed in um but yeah, it was developed in nineteen sixty-one and is currently about eighty percent of the bread made in the UK uses the Chollywood process. Oh wow. As well as large amounts of the bread produced in Australia, New Zealand, India, lot of countries honestly. Um, and part of the reason for developing this process was so that they could use the lower protein British wheat because I think we've talked before about how during and after World War II there was a big push to be less reliant on imports for food mm -hmm. and this was a part of that because it meant that we could use more British wheat okay Although, since then, they have also improved what British wheat is used. I was going to say, did we not think to like try and make the, the wheat better in the first place? Well, I guess it's a longer process than just figuring out how to utilise the bad wheat better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, according to an article on it in BBC News that I found, it makes the average loaf in Britain 40% softer than ones made with British wheat at the time. Oh, wow. And the bread also lasts longer, probably to do with all of the additional salt and fat, let's be honest. And yeah, it, it is also just a much more efficient way of making 
bread. Like lots of bread. Although, interestingly, I don't 100% understand why. Um, possibly to do with the amylase, because sugars are a big factor. Um, apparently, and I can vouch for this, um, IBS symptoms are worse with Chorleywood processed bread versus traditionally made bread. Ah. Yeah, I guess that might, it sounds like it might be to do with the added stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, all the articles on it that I could find were behind paywalls. Um, oh. But my theory is that it's to do with the increase in simple sugars, because that can be a factor. And it is definitely a phenomenon that I have experienced firsthand. It's a part of why I make my own bread, because it means I can eat more bread. Oh, and that is the important thing. Well, it is, because some days you want toast for breakfast and a sandwich for lunch, like that housewife. Yeah. I mean, bread is the stuff of life. I just really like bread. 100%. Bread is amazing. If you're listening to this and don't have a wheat allergy, go eat some bread. <laughs> and if you do, go eat some gluten-free bread. Yeah, eat whatever bread you can. It's good stuff. <laughs> but yeah, there is no, there is now a little bit of a pushback against the Chorleywood process. Okay. Especially from smaller bakeries because they can't implement all of this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but... But like I said, most so most bread in the UK generally, and definitely most white bread, is made with this process. Ah. So now we have the thing that it's like established. Yeah, but there is there is definitely a rise in people wanting artisan breads in the mm -hmm. last few years. Partly as a push to more as people move more towards wanting to support local business, and partly because it is nicer. Frankly, it's just nicer. It is nice. So it's it will be kind of interesting to see whether that eighty percent shifts because that's that that's that is from two thousand and nine. Okay. And I would love to know if it is different now. Yeah. Perhaps more sort of variety in the bread world. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is sliced bread and the Chollywood process. <laughs> That was an absolutely fascinating journey. <laughs> I have learned a lot of things. I'm going to be thinking about the sliced bread bad for a while. <laughs> I would say in the history of like failed prohibitions, that's pretty spectacular. Like it didn't fail as badly as actual prohibition. Because <laughs> like... Actual prohibition was a lot longer, but I feel like did a lot worse. I feel like, yeah, I guess you don't have people like smuggling sliced bread. <laughs> Although maybe no... you would have if it had, if it had pushed on into that third month. All maybe. Loose. Who knows? <laughs> maybe this is a good concept for a what if movie. <laughs> that would have been like bread barons. I'd watch that. I'd watch the heck out of that. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. 
The Probably Bad Podcast brings you ideas like dire humans, fight your GM in real life, and what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to The Probably Bad Podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. So what is our local larder? Uh, so our local larder is unrelated. I haven't matched it this time, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but this is um, inspired by a slightly silly Tumblr post. Um, You're going to have to narrow it down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just reminded me of this regional specialty that exists. Uh, they are called Mozart Kugel. Oh, I think I know which Tumblr post. It's one of the polls, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the, like, which incredibly specific thing have you done? Uh, which in my my case was, have eaten Mozart Kugel uh, or Mozart balls. So w- what is a Mozart ball? A Mozart ball uh, is a confectionery thing. Um, it is regional to Salzburg in Austria. Uh, also sense. the birthplace of Mozart and it is um, basically a, a ball of pistachio marzipan uh, coated in a, a nougat nougat is it nougat? Yeah. I mean I grew up calling it nugget which isn't right at all so let's go with that it's coated in nugget <laughs> <laughs> And then it's covered in dark chocolate. That sounds amazing. So it's it's like a little a little bonbon. A little, yeah, they are they are good. If you're a person that likes marzipan, they and and if you like the good nuts, they are delicious. <laughs> um, I mean, I love and, pistachio. Yeah, I pistachio feel like I is oh, it's one of the best flavors. Um, <laughs> They are so easy to devour, let me tell you. <laughs> um, and then, as with many things on this podcast, there is surprisingly more to the history of this thing than meets the eye. Was it banned in 1943? No, uh, but there is a legal dispute involved. Oh. <laughs> Do tell. So, so the Mozart Kugel um, was created in 1890 by a confectioner based in Salzburg named Paul Fuss. Mm-hmm. Um, and he called it the, well, he originally called it the Mozart Bonbon, um, mm-hmm. but it became known as the, the Mozart Kugel. And he just named it after Mozart because marketing, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, you would. And, yeah, and being created in Salzburg. Um, so... He had uh, trained as a confectioner. It was kind of a family business. And he actually studied in Vienna, Budapest, Paris, and Nice um, as an apprentice confectioner. So, uh, very comprehensive education. Uh, In 1884, he opened his own um, bakery, uh, pastry shop. And that's where he created, after lengthy trials, apparently, (laughs) he created the Mozart ball. Um, and one of the main things about this is that it was perfectly round, which for confections was kind of difficult to achieve because um, when you dip it in chocolate, it has to, the chocolate has to set um, 
and it's, it's difficult to do that without um, creating like a f- one flat side where mm-hmm. you put it down. So what he did uh, was to put the marzipan ball, pistachio marzipan ball on a stick, um, dip it in dark chocolate, uh, wait for it to set, then remove the stick and fill the hole uh, with dark chocolate by hand. Um, and then it was beautifully wrapped in silver foil. Um, so you get this this lovely little confection. Um, now, I've eaten these in Salzburg because they're just extra like that, but you can get them pretty much across Austria um, because they became a thing. Um, unsurprisingly. Um, and partly the reason they became a thing <laughs> is because um, while... Paul First's original Mozart balls started doing pretty well um, and becoming quite popular. He had not applied for a patent. Oh. As you might expect, because, like, I guess he didn't know that his invention would would become really popular. And so other um, bakeries in the area started selling their own Mozart balls. Um... And he was not very happy about that. So uh, first started a legal process to try and trademark his creation. Um, And at first that was only with the other producers in Salzburg. But as this spread, it sort of grew to include several countries. (laughs) Um, Oh, you tried. And and the result of this case was that his competitors had to, to rename their products. Um, so they couldn't call them, like, original Mozart Kugeln. Kugeln. Um, so one of the main producers of Mozart balls uh, now is the uh, company Mirabel, um, which is also based in Salzburg. And they renamed theirs Real Salzburg Mozart Kugeln. <laughs> um, like unlike... It's like, oh, we can't call it original, but we can call it other things that imply exactly. it's original. Unlike the uh, the Paul First one, which is called the original Salzburger Mozart Kugeln. <laughs> and then one of the other companies, Reber, named theirs the Real Reber Mozart Kugeln. Spectacular. <laughs> Yes. So Paul First products are the only one, uh, the first you might say. Oh dear. That can be called original Salzburg Mozart Kugel. But you might be forgiven for for confusing those with the others. <laughs> um. So there have been a few more developments in this case. Oh, is but... is it ongoing? <laughs> Um, well, there's also the shape to consider. Uh, so the original ones and the uh, Mirabelle, it's, it, in terms of um, a sort of country-wide or national, internationally uh, commercially produced ones, um, the Mirabelle Mozart balls are the only ones that are allowed to be perfectly round. Not even the first ones. Oh, the f- the first one, yeah. Um, 
the originals are are still around. Oh, okay. Um, but but in terms of sort of mass production, um, the Mirabelle ones are the only ones that are allowed to be around. <laughs> Uh, I believe that was decided in the 1970s um, because Mirabelle and Raver um, had a bit of a spat about the Mozart Kugel trademark um, of, of that name. So the, they're, they're both allowed to use the label Mozart Kugel, but only the Mirabelle ones can be round. I'm not sure if that even counts as a victory. <laughs> I don't know. But it's an important distinction, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it slightly affects the flavour or something. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, it is iconic, I suppose. <laughs> and sort of on the note of them being round... Oh, by the way, um, you can still buy Mozart balls from the original Paul First um, bakery. Awesome. Which still exists in Salzburg. Uh, I think they've got like four shops now. Um, so if you're, we can add that to the road trip. Yeah. Um, if you want to go to the original, still there in Salzburg. Um, in fact, they became so synonymous with Salzburg <laughs> that in 2006, uh, an art installation was put in place um, where 80 um, giant polyester Mozart balls were installed in Salzburg Old Town um, which th this was a, an art project um, and this went great until <laughs> Is, I, ass I assume like wrapped ones or was it just like big orbs like big um, orbs I don't know hold on let me google 2006 Mozart <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to vision uh Sculptures. Are there any images for this? Uh, oh, I, I think they were like painted different things. Okay, so it wasn't just like, let's cover the city in brown orbs. No, no, I think they had different like designs on them. By the way, all these companies have a slightly different picture of Mozart on their packaging. Naturally. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think they were they had different sort of designs on them by different artists, um, as far as I can make out. Uh, but this went great until, um, as you might expect, these were too tempting for some people having a bit of fun. Mm -hmm. And one of these was removed from where it had been bolted to the ground and rolled down the street, causing damages of 7,000 euros. It's Mozart ball related crime. It's beautiful. <laughs> um so so there you go. <laughs> the surprisingly rich history of um the deceptively small Mozart ball. Um <laughs> go try them out if you can. They're very nice. And I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> so if you want to support us and join the Discord where yeah, we've been talking a lot about bread, like I say. Um, it is in the name. It is. It's just... I know the craft channel is often busier than the food channel, but not this week. <laughs> not today. You can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread. 
Uh, you can also find us at the moment on Twitter at Bread and Thread, where we have uh, teasers for upcoming episodes, pictures of things that we talk about on the podcast, uh, and also we retweet relate relevant things. Uh, you can find similar things on Bread and Thread Tumblr, where you can also send us messages, uh, episodes, requests, local order suggestions. Sometimes people just send us nice messages and it's really lovely. Yeah. If you want to talk about bread, just, you know, tumble us. Hit us up. Is that a thing? <laughs> Slide uh, into the DMs. Yeah, or if instead you could just email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to be boring about it. <laughs> but if you've got any episode suggestions, things like that, you can, you can drop us a line there. But thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.